0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Garrett Jones. Garrett is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University. His interests include macroeconomics, the micro foundations of economic growth, IQ, the power of culture, and public choice economics. The books we focus on in this episode are 10% Less Democracy, Why You Should Trust Elites A Little Bit More, and the Public A Little Less. And the culture transplant, how migrants make the economies they move to a lot like the ones they left. We talk about the intellectual environment of George Mason University, and we briefly digress into a conversation about UAPs. Then we get back to the meat of the discussion. We talk about the benefits and drawbacks of democracy. We discuss the possibility of so-called benign dictatorships. We talk about the crisis of expertise, the electoral college, and then we move on to the topic of immigration. We talk about whether and in what ways immigrants assimilate. We talk about the idea of the melting pot. We discuss high-trust versus low-trust cultures, and much more. I find Garrett to be a provocative thinker in the good sense of that word, though I don't totally share his point of view on cultural assimilation. In any event, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, Garrett Jones. Okay, Garrett Jones. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've been following your work for a long time. You are in the circle of GMU, George Mason University economists like Tyler Cowen, Brian Kaplan, or I think Robin Hanson as well, right? Who have really created this subculture of of you know extremely interesting high IQ people that disagree with each other on various really interesting matters of import and always play by the rules of intellectual engagement. And um, you you just, uh, you know, I think created a Really beautiful subculture that is really fascinating to peer into as an outsider and to uh, enjoy the fruits of as a reader. So you know, congratulations on on being a part of that. And how does it feel to be part of that kind of a rare subculture?
1: Yeah, it's obviously one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. Right. I've met other professors who are at officially more prestigious universities who tell me you're really lucky to have what you have at George Mason. Right. This idea of an environment of intellectual ferment where people who are smart who are trained in the best ideas and social Sciences, but don't waste their best decades playing math games in journals and instead engage with real ideas, instead engage in interdisciplinary thinking, um, that's a great environment to be in. And I'm I'm glad that uh, Tyler Cowen and my other, my department chairs have done so much to make that possible.
0: Seems you also have created a subculture that really prizes strong disagreement with friends such that you, Brian Kaplan, Tyler Cowen, Robin Hanson, you can all write a really barbed blog post or tweet saying strongly disagree with my colleague here, and you'll lay out the reasons. Whereas many other subcultures prize conformity, Mm -hmm. right? And you don't want to disagree too much with a friend or or else it's awkward.
1: Yes. Um, Lately, uh, the question of unmanned aerial phenomenon, UFOs has been an opportunity for some back and forth between a lot of us, especially on Twitter and blog posts. Um, But that's Uh, You don't have to other somebody, right? You can just keep the discussion going uh, because ultimately I think part of what all of us realize is that our audience is not the three or four of us. It's the greater intellectual community, right? And we should be engaging with those folks in a useful way.
0: What's the disagreement about UFOs or UAPs as they've been rebranded?
1: Uh, yes, so I, it seems as though uh, Tyler and Robin uh, seem to be more uh, sympathetic to the evidence. They seem to be more uh, persuaded by some of the evidence that these are something interesting. Maybe they're putting it in the 1% to 2 to 3% chance that it's actually something alien. And I think it's fair to say that Alex and I don't tend to look at it that way. I have I was raised LDS. I've seen a lot of evidence for that's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, there are a lot of religions that have pretty interesting, miraculous claims as part of their uh, background. And I evaluate these things. I evaluate these miraculous stories. And I'm like, some things are just hard to explain. I don't have to have an explanation for... A really unusual phenomenon, I don't have to immediately say if I don't have an an explanation for this weird phenomenon, I'm going to assume that it's a miracle. I'm going to conclude that it's a miracle. Some weird things are just hard to explain. They're puzzles that are beyond the reach of simple explanations, at least in the course of a couple of minutes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I can see both sides of this. So, for example, I had Neil deGrasse Tyson on this podcast, and he was uh, very, very dismissive of of the possibility that Mm -hmm. any strange phenomenon we've seen are explained by um, extraterrestrial life. And you know so, uh, on the one hand someone like him will say that it's very unlikely we're alone in the universe given that you know we believe life is a naturally occurring process and not it's not that God touched one corner of, of the universe and breathed life into it but it, it's pro- probable that we came from some kind of primordial soup which is in principle replicable somewhere else and given how many worlds there are, it's unlikely we're the only instance of of intelligent life On the other hand, I haven't seen any, you know, compelling evidence that the UAPs we've seen are best explained by extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. So, for example, recently, th- this podcast probably may not come out for a couple weeks after we're talking about it, but there's there's been renewed attention on the on the phenomenon of UAPs because I believe his name is David Grutch. Is that yeah? yeah. So David Grutch has um, made claims b- before Congress now that. There's been a kind of decentralized program within the U.S. government of collecting essentially alien remains, remains of spacecrafts and of alien beings. And there was an article that first, a long article that came out about it a few months ago at this point. Whenever the article, I felt, well, this is something definitely worth paying attention to. But then when I saw the guy speak himself, I had the, just like the intuition that one has, which you can't quite put a finger on that, but that you're witnessing someone who's a crazy person. Um, now that gut feeling, I'm not claiming that my gut is, is somehow super reliable, but I definitely downgraded my, the odds that I think he, he has, he's going to show anything for his claims. Once I saw him speak.
1: Yeah, I mean, I um, partly I come at this as you know a Bayesian. I try to ask myself statistically if there were aliens um, in the universe, they would either likely be nowhere or they'd be everywhere. The chances of them just showing up in very hazy photographs on military monitors, like that's a very narrow range of evidence that should exist if they're really if there's other life in the universe, right? We should be seeing either civilizations have a tough time getting beyond their galaxy or beyond their solar system or wherever. Or on the other hand, ultimately some, everybody gets everywhere. Neither of those are obviously what's going on. I mean, it's possible that uh, the for- former category is what's happening right now. It's possible that there have been alien lives that are have gone and risen and fallen away over the course of the billions of years of human um, ex- of, of the universe's existence, right? That's totally possible. We obviously know that it's not the case that aliens are everywhere and obvious, that they're reorganizing galaxies, spinning them in unique colors, turning galaxies into looking like the number pi, something like that, right? So the idea that they're just in this tiny little area is very weird. Also, there's the more my jokey answer to this is that um, if... Our government is a. If our government were able to actually keep secrets and be competent at things, then there wouldn't have been a press conference held at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, right? Um, so, like the level, like our government makes a lot of mistakes and its um, foul-ups easily get found out quickly. I mean, the Watergate burglary would be one. Iran Contra would be another. So, the idea that my government is competent enough to keep uh, something like that under wraps for decades. Well, I wonder is if there isn't like a,
0: a seen and unseen fallacy there because like, by definition, we don't know about the things governments have successfully hid. That's true. Right. We only know about the ones we found
1: out. Yeah. But we do, we should ask ourselves, like, if you've worked in government, if you, do you think that these are the kind of people who can keep a secret for that long? Right. And would it have leaked out by Yeah. Now? Would Jimmy Carter have let us know? Would uh, Donald Trump have let us know? I,
0: I just don't see the incentive to hide. Right. I, I think, obviously, Bill Clinton had a large incentive to try to hide his blowjob and failed. About failed, And, you know, Nixon had a huge incentive to hide Watergate and failed. And those are all instructive examples. But, like, where is the incentive to hide this from the public? I, I suppose you could argue the first person to get their hands on novel technology wins some kind of arms race. But, I mean, still, it, it, this seems in the category of, of things that any typical patriotic government official would very much want to inform the top brass
1: of very quickly. And then by definition, it would become difficult to hide. And of course, there are almost 200 countries in the world. And so aliens, uh, the idea that governments all around the world have been successfully keeping this hidden is strange credulity too, right? As does the the theory that for some reason, the aliens only crash land their planes in North America, right? These are all sort of, basically, one needs a lot of crazy to to line up in a row in order to get just the set of facts that the conspiracy theorists are pushing.
0: The UAP diehards would say, like, there's cattle proddings in Brazil and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that gets... That gets really strange.
1: I mean, aliens that just, they're able to get all the way across the galaxy, but then they just crash land once they get to Earth. That's really, I mean, that's that's real, that's not like something out of a 1940s radio serial. On the other hand, I, I thought of
0: this analogy in the past. If you were a Native American looking at Europeans hundreds of years ago, you'd say, these guys got all the way across the Atlantic Ocean and then they just like... Like they, they landed here and now they they have no idea what to do with themselves and yeah. They're, yeah. and they're so dying for shipwrecked and for a while right and so, they're shipwrecked yeah, yeah. yeah I mean I don't know yeah. so it, it, it's all it's all possible but I'm so I mean I would categorize myself as in principle open minded to UAPs uh, stemming from extraterrestrial life but every past example and current example of the evidence being right around the corner has turned up in my view wanting and i expect that to be the case for for the most recent one as well though you know again i don't have the best explanations for you know i've seen the tic tac ufo i've seen all of the um, all of the evidence and i uh, this is just something i'm not going to explain it by extraterrestrial life until there really is the smoking gun and in this case david grush has said you know we we actually have biological material that is provably non-human. Now, if that is true, that is an extremely easy claim to prove. All you'd have to do is ship a few examples of this to a few different teams of chemists or physicists that could confirm, yes, this is a source that could not possibly have been created given the current state of human knowledge. Now, why that hasn't been done in this case is extremely suspicious to me, given the claims that he's made.
1: Yeah, I think that we should be good Bayesians about this and say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. My base level of belief is that this is a wildly extraordinary claim. So it should it should require wildly extraordinary evidence. And they're not even at sort of like basic mid-levels of evidence. So, I, I mean, if this is the level of evidence it takes to believe in aliens, I should be believing in a lot of religions right now. Because there are a lot of miraculous claims where like weird things happen, somebody saw something, and um, it's hard to explain and I can't come up with a legitimate easy explanation. I think to me, one lesson of this is that the human demand to come up with explanations is um, overrated. We, should, we shouldn't be insisting on coming up with answers for things. We should be like people who are trying to explain the origins of life and where life came from and how all the species came to be if we were living in the 1400s. If I was living in the 1400s, I would really want an explanation for why there are all these species around and why, you know, like seems to produce sort of like, you know, lions seem to have lions and tigers seem to have tigers. Like, why is all this happening? And, you know, what's, where did life come from? And why is there, why are there so many species? It You can see why religions came along to give people easy answers for that. The right answer if you lived in the 1400s would be, I shouldn't come up with an answer. I should just wait for a few centuries and maybe somebody else would come up with one. So just embracing ignorance is, I think, an intellectual virtue that is underrated in our age. Underrated in every age, I think. Okay, so I didn't expect to start there,
0: but really I got you on the podcast to discuss your most recent two books uh, surrounding the topics of democracy and culture and uh, taking positions on those that are probably counterintuitive to some people, maybe upsetting to some people, but really based on on lots of research and careful thinking. I mean, in America we have this idea that democracy is basically a sacred value, right? Democracy is at the core of what for many people it means to be an American. And as a sacred value, the idea is that more democracy is always better. Every example of an American failure, of an American problem, is solved or at least not hurt by having more democratic control, by having public opinion closer to the lever of policy outcomes. You come along and you are saying, actually, sure, democracy is good to an extent, but there are actually very important ways in which more democracy is bad and less democracy would be good. So how do you substantiate that?
1: Well, part of the way I look at it is that I was trained in monetary economics, right? And so my dissertation was on the Fed. And if there's one thing that economists have learned just by looking at the data uh, over the last few decades, it's that countries that have central banks that are kept far away from the politicians, far from the voters, tend to get better outcomes. And not better outcomes at the expense of the masses, but it seems to be a totally free lunch. So countries that have what we euphemistically call more independent central banks, banks where the elected politicians can't just fire the head of the bank, they seem to have lower inflation and they probably have fewer financial crises too. So anytime you you can get a free lunch, you should take it. So we take that for granted. But you might think that's just us economists saying, well, we're smart, you should put us in charge. But I have to say the evidence backs us up on this, right? Um, having elected politicians making decisions on interest rates right before an election would probably not be good policy. That's why we delegated to the nerds. Independent judges, right? Independent uh, Supreme Courts um, that have long terms that are kept away from the, uh, the heat of government. That seems to be a free lunch or something close to a free lunch where we get better governance. We hand over a bunch of big decisions to elites who can't be recalled by the voters very easily at all. And this is part of what we call, we call it an independent judiciary. But when we, when we talk, when we celebrate the independent judiciary, what's it independent of? It's independent of the voters. So, you know, I look at the Senate, for instance, and, and I, I was actually a, a Senate staffer a long time ago for Orrin Hatch. And senators in the U.S. have six-year terms, members of the House have two-year terms, and One thing that everybody knows when you work on the Hill is that senators seem to have a longer time horizon than members of the House. Senators are, they're willing to um, act like, you know, to be a little glib. They act like statesmen the first four years, and then they act like pandering politicians the last two. And that seems to be pretty good for governance overall. Um, it turns out that s- there's a study that shows that senators are 10 percentage points more likely to vote for a free trade agreement uh, when they're further from an election. So Hillary Clinton, for example, voted for every free trade every free trade deal in her first four years as a senator. And she voted against every free trade deal in her last two years as a senator when she was just coming up for re-election. Right, so politicians pay attention to voters and often what voters want is bad. So I'd say those are some key forms of evidence. Like looking at the Senate shows us the the value of a little bit of distance from the voters. Um, Judges and independent judiciary is strangely something we celebrate as democratic, but it's quite undemocratic, right? Nobody wants key judicial decisions made by fiat or by, excuse me, by plebiscite, by mass vote. If you picture
0: a system where we could remove a Supreme Court justice by referendum, by national Mm -hmm. referendum, Probably every single current Supreme Court justice would have been removed.
1: At some point in time or another, yeah.
0: It, certainly if you yeah. zoom out to the past like, 20 years, there's
1: almost no doubt. But even more democratic would be to just have the citizens uh, decide, make the Supreme Court decisions. So it would be more democratic. De- now, I would have to say that uh, jury decision making, uh, you know, which is you know jury trials are a, a right that uh, we have in the United States for almost everything. Um, a jury trial is pretty democratic, right? But there we have a small number of people who know that they're the decisive voters, you know, usually 12 people, right? So that's a form of democracy that seems to get the best parts of democracy, ran, you know, getting the people's voice in there, but getting rid of the one of the weaknesses of democracy, which is where everyone's free riding off of everyone else's hard work, right? When you're one of the 12, you know you're one of the key decision makers. When you're one of millions, you're like, eh, it doesn't really matter. In fact, you often know that your vote de facto doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. Like I know I I know that New York's delegates are going to go blue. My vote doesn't matter in in that context of a presidential election. Right.
1: I mean, if whenever an election is decided by more than one person, by more than one vote, your vote didn't matter. Right. So so we have a lot of so the 10 percent less democracy is really about pointing to a lot of empirical evidence, a lot of real world evidence that in a lot of areas voters have. Voters are short sighted. And when we look at the real world and we look at the evidence, it looks like keeping decisions a little bit further away from voters has a good payoff. There are big benefits to democracy. Now, I should point out the thing we usually call democracy today is not, wouldn't be democracy by the standards of the Greeks, right? We are using representative democracy with longer terms than Romans would have, than Greeks would have ever wanted, right? The ancient Greeks. Um, For them, a one year term was pushing it. I'm not kidding, right? So. And so the moving beyond those simple questions, I move a little bit further later in the book, and I say, you know, if you just look around, Alexander Hamilton was right, and having a national debt is a way of making sure that the international pool of money is keeping an eye on your government's policy. It's a way of getting the financial markets vote on your government's policy. And that's a good idea because those folks have a long time horizon. They have skin in the game and you should pay attention to what they have to say about the likelihood of success or failure of your, of at least the economics of your government policy. It's not the same as morality, but it's something at least worth paying attention to. So, you know, having a debt is a way of basically constraining your voters. And again, it's something that a lot of democracies do. Um, when countries get in financial trouble, um, they treat the the debt that they have to pay and how the bondholders feel, the way that a lot of companies treat their uh, management consultants. They say, well, you know, I really don't want to have to fire you, but these expensive management consultants we just hire and say we've got to, right? It's a way of having somebody to pass the buck to. And that's part of how people... We govern each other is we we want to be the good cop and so we outsource the bad cop. So having the international pool of money, the bondholders be a bad cop is actually a good part of governance, I think. Just another reminder that purely having the voters making the day-to-day decisions of a government is nobody's bliss point. We want, it, we want to we wanna outsource a lot of decisions to experts and we want to make it hard for the voters to recall those experts by and large.
0: It's interesting. So I wanna sort of ask what are the areas where the voters are most ignorant and what are the areas where the voters are most correct.
1: Oh, that's really good. I mean, of course it'll change century century by century, right? I would say that um, you know, going to back to my colleague Brian Kaplan's book Myth of the Rational Voter, he he pointed out that uh voters have a strong anti-foreign bias. They seem to be way more hostile to to free trade, to low tariff barriers compared to what professional economists think. And it seemed, I I agree with the professional economists on this. So basically vote, regular voters are too hostile to free trade. They're too hostile to foreigners more generally. They're, they're too hostile to, um, the boss.
0: I mean, I I can picture a scenario, like, let's say, let's say that because there are going to be winners and losers, right? Even if on the aggregate free trade is a very good thing for a population, there are going to be some losers from that, People's who, who, people who are gonna be facing higher competition precisely from the, the consequences of free trade. If all of them are voting very strongly against it, it may look like a population has a sort of the wrong opinion Whereas if let's say 100% of economists understand the big picture, but 20% of people who don't benefit from it are voting against it, you can say, well, the population is 20% against this policy. They should be 100% for it if they were as accurate as the economists. So does it, is it a function of legitimate self-interest that the voters are? sort of have the wrong opinion, or does it go beyond that just into outright ignorance? That's a
1: good question. So it, it, I think all the evidence points started going far beyond raw self-interest to just ignorance. So people who are basic, for instance, people who are retired from, say, auto making industries are, who, who, who used to make cars, but don't make cars anymore, right? Those folks are not excited about free trade. You know, now they're just car buyers. They're not car makers anymore, right? So to give a that's a glib example. But people who live in towns that might be impacted by this seem to, you know, you can understand them having a self-interest, but the level of hostility is much more than, say, the 20% you're thinking about. It seems to be more than can be explained. And it seems to be because people don't understand the possibility, the they don't understand um sufficiently um how the market creates new opportunities, right? So if you're a if you're a 45 to 65 year old person who's working on an assembly line, on net free trade is probably pretty bad for you, right? But younger people actually can and do readjust, and they do it at a pretty hot, pretty high level. And they're not sufficiently supportive of free trade. I mean, they're the ones getting the free, the inexpensive stuff at the stores, and they're not sufficiently excited about it. So another one that's more, that's a bigger deal, is all the labor market regulation stuff, right? Europe, of course. Uh, has much Europe and actually East Asia both have much stronger labor market regulations than you know e- economists would generally support, and those are really popular. People really don't trust the boss, right? So this is something that comes out in sort of uh, Alberto, the late Alberto alessino's work that a lot of hostility to a lot of demand for government regulation in the labor market comes from not trusting the boss. So in high trust societies, people are willing, more willing to allow the boss to fire somebody because they think the well the boss might be a good guy. In low trust, lower trust societies, people are like, oh, I don't want to, but overall, people just aren't. They really dislike the process. They have a, I would say it's a version of the endowment effect, right? Um, They're thinking like behavioral, like the way behavioral economists describe people. Uh, When people get a job, they have this endowment, and they're really thinking about like this job that I have is a treasure that I want to keep, and I don't want somebody to take it away from me. So why don't we make it really hard for me to be fired? And those rules seem to overall just reduce a lot of dynamism. They make it hard to have the kind of creative destruction that's at the heart of um, innovation. So it's still the case that, for instance, in Western Europe, um, when people lose their jobs, they're still getting replacement rates of their old income of like 75% of their old income for like a year or two. thats unbelievable, right? So And that keeps the unemployment rates really high. In the U.S., it's just so much lower. We're fortunate in the U.S. that voters, and the, the opinion differences between the U.S. and Europe aren't that high on this. So we're just lucky that American institutions don't give American voters what they want when it comes to labor market regulation. We'd probably be poor, we'd have higher unemployment rates, and we'd have a lot less business dynamism.
0: So if I think about something like crime, in that case, how does expert opinion differ from voter opinion?
1: And is there as big a divergence? That takes me outside of my um, area of expertise because I actually don't know surveys of, say, criminologists. So, I mean, if I just go by, so one thing that I have to do in this line of work is make sure that I'm not treating, say, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages as the elites, right? I take uh, something much more like Brian Kaplan's approach, which is I want to look at experts in the field and see what they think. So, I mean, I know when I look at recent literature reviews in the economics of crime, which overlaps a lot with criminology, I mean, they their findings are generally finding, they're, they're generally finding that more police actually reduce rates of crime. There is some debate on... On the the incarceration effects on crime actually d- does you know the incapacitation effects of crime are obvious are pretty obvious. There are some complicated discussions of uh, when the optimal time when the what the optimal amount of time is for a person to be in prison. But I'll go to I'll go to my colleague Alex Tabarrok on this, um, who knows literature quite well, and his view is that higher numbers of police on the street so you increase the the probability of individual criminals being caught in the short run. And having individual folks on police on the street deterring crime, that seems to have a large payoff. That is, there's still some debate on three strikes, are out, long sentences. But um, I'd say, I think it's safe to say that experts in the field are hostile to the view that cutting police budgets is a way will have minimal effect on crime. And I think that fits with the masses thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, my take on this would be people are far too pessimistic when they're thinking about the country in general. This is what they call the optimism gap. You ask people, how is the country doing with regards to crime? And they will give you the, pes- the most pessimistic possible story based on the fact that they've been watching the news lately and yeah. there's always enough crime for the news. But if you ask them what's going on in your neighborhood, they will have a pretty accurate take. And you know, if you look at voters being upset with their local D.A., with things like this, I think they tend to be pretty correct in terms of responding to changes in local conditions. But if you ask them to make an assessment globally, they're probably going to be far worse than the experts. Which is a moot point in the case of crime because crime is local and crime policy is local. You know, your local police station is largely what you have to have to control. But I mean, is there any is there any sense? How do you view? the kind of populist spirit that, uh, has taken over a lot of places, right? Like the core idea of populism is that, you know, the people know what is best and you're going to channel the popular will through an individual that has some kind of magic line into the, uh, the will of the people.
1: Yeah. Always. Yeah. It's a disaster.
0: It's a disaster. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, populism is quite generally a disaster, right? I mean, our our last populist movement um got us uh prohibition, right? Depending on how you want to blend together populism and progressivism. And uh, you know, and I think the new these the new wave of populism that is hostile to trade, hostile to any kind of uh insider decision making and hostile to following to actually believing results of elections uh that seem to be fairly run about as well as things get run in the real world. I mean, this is, it's, uh, it's people, it's a lot of wish fulfillment, I think, right? So people like, I mean, it's, it's, I understand why people don't want to say like, there's other people who know more than I do about this and the world might not be the way I think it is. But I mean, a huge part of my intellectual development, a, a huge part of the number of the gifts that I've been given in life have come from the fact that I get, I kept the door open to learning that I was wrong about things. And yeah, the the human soul does not contain all does not contain all contain all knowledge, right? And so we have to like we have to learn things from each other and we usually have to learn things from people who have been thinking about it a long time. Not from any one person, but from a sort of an invisible hand that pulls together knowledge from a lot of people who have been thinking. So, about it. I'm trying to think of examples where I think the expert class is
0: is just Atrocious and arguably worse than public opinion. Yeah. So for example, the I pay a lot of attention to the racism literature. And if you were to pull the racism experts who teach at the Ivy League colleges and mm-hmm. so forth, my sense is you would get a picture of reality that is so far from the truth that it would make sense to devalue the weight of the expert class in, in that field. Economics may, be, may not be the same, but if you look at like the broader landscape of the expert class, there are a few critiques that I think are legitimately leveled at it. One is that it, in certain instances has been captured by uh, wokeness and social justice or other ideologies that have fundamentally warped its attitude towards empiricism. So that would be true, for example, of uh, gender and race, I would say. And another different critique that would get leveled at it is that the experts have been captured by industry, which is to some extent people's critique of drug experts, right? The the experts who scientists that need to get their next grant from the NIH or the NIAID and have a kind of revolving door phenomenon with the industries that they're delivering information about. To what extent do those, you can take those critiques sort of one at a time. To what extent do those undermine the idea that the experts know more than the people?
1: Ah, well, for one thing, I when I compare them to the people, I want to be comparing them to all the people, right? Not just a subsec, uh, subset of the people that happen to be sort of on my side or on my political party or following my podcast. People who who often prefer the people over the elites often quickly you know, dive into some subset of the people, right? So I want to do that first. So I don't know what the people think on. A lot of these issues if I just surveyed all of the American people, right? Um, I would probably get pretty diverse views on issues of both race and gender, right? Um and the average might not be might might not be that far from those elites. Second, I you're right. I do think I I do have a bias toward um quantitative fields that use statistical methods, which kind of pulls me in the direction of econ. That's a fair, that's a fair point. I do see that when when economists Well, I will say this, you know, Leo Strauss has had a lot of, the philosopher Leo Strauss, the late philosopher, um, has had a big effect on a lot of us at George Mason. And Leo Strauss thought that on controversial topics, many philosophers um, sort of spoke in code, sort of speak out out of both sides of their mouth. And part of the reason they do this is because the first great philosopher, Socrates, tried speaking his mind, and he was given a cup of hemlock for it, right? And so the Straussian take is that sometimes you have to read between the lines, And I've found that to be extremely useful when I'm reading in areas of research. I mean, I've done research on IQ, uh, and I've done research on culture. I've done research on immigration. And in these areas, I find that I often have to make a distinction between the public pronouncements and what's included in Table 3. Right, so I've noticed this on quite a number of issues, and too long to actually covered a podcast. And so it is a reminder that the public statements of some of these folks—you're right—it's fair to say, like sometimes they can't be trusted, and you have to um, uh, talk to some of these folks over a couple of drinks when the after the cell phone batteries have died.
0: Yeah, no, that is definitely true. That's definitely my experience too. Uh, dealing with all kinds of institutions like the the. The truths you will get out of people yeah. over a drink are just diametrically different than what they will tweet the very next day or what, th- what they will say publicly.
1: And I, but I have to say, you know, econ has been pretty good on this. Like, we've had recent lit reviews on the economics of crime and punishment and policing. And like, you can learn a lot of really good things out of them. And they're, it's not tucked away in table three too much. On the most explosive issues where people fear their careers being destroyed, I think there, there is a special reason for caution about that uh, and for how we interpret things on
0: that it should be issues it worth saying that you know everyone hates economists
1: <laughs>
0: in the academy like you're not yeah the most true. popular no we
1: uh right? we, we are often uh, not I that popular yeah
0: precisely in some way because you have preserved the empirical spirit and that sometimes takes you in directions which are um not congenial to people not congenial to to ideology
1: yeah. The, um, I mean, it's one of the great one of the great things about being an economist is that, uh, especially a tenured economist, that you have a moral responsibility to tell the truth. And you also have some intellectual tools that help you think about how do you understand the world when you don't really get to run experiments very often, but you really want to learn about cause and effect. So the tools really do help you. And they've, I mean, I started getting them over 25 years ago, started studying it in a serious way over 25 years ago, and it's been paying off ever since. So a good intermediate macro book and intermediate microeconomics book can change your world.
0: So you've pointed to all these examples like an independent uh, central bank, Supreme Court justices or, or judges in general that serve long terms and you know, can't be fired. All these examples where taking things out of the control of the voters is actually good for not just the voters, but the, the entire society. Why not take this all the way and just say autocracy is better?
1: Oh, and the core reason for this is that, you know, as Amartya Sen, the Nobel laureate, showed, um, there's never been a famine in a democracy. And one thing that democracies are really good at is making sure their citizens don't starve to death in famines. And so, India's he studied India, of course, and India's last famine was just a few years before independence. And since India's independence, I mean, it's not like they switched to becoming a capitalist utopia or anything, right? They, they, they stayed quite socialist for quite a long time with bad economic policies for decades. Uh, but never, nonetheless, they managed to never have a famine again. So Amartya Sen's result is held up in broad terms. That basically, voters care about not make they, they care about one thing that an autocrat might not care about, which is making sure that large numbers of citizens do not starve to death. Um, another point that Bill Easterly made, uh, the NYU economist, is that it, democracies don't kill their citizens very often. So I'd say those are the two big ones. There are other questions that are more debatable about whether democracy causes this or that good outcome, but democracy is not murdering their own citizens in large numbers, and democracy is not, uh, let, not letting their people starve to death. Like, we'll give you the equivalent of food stamps or relief aid or something rather than let people die in a famine. Those seem like they're good enough that I wouldn't want to trade those off for any other alleged benefits of autocracy. I mean, I think more generally, it's worth remembering that even so-called autocrats are never really autocrats. You know, this is one of the big findings of studies of dictatorships and of monarchies more generally, is that the equilibrium, as my late colleague Gordon Tulloch pointed out, the equilibrium always seems to be king and council. Kings always have some kind of Senate around them, some kind of body of advisors who are actually powerful enough to say no at times and powerful enough to stop the leader. So this is a reminder that there really is no option of autocracy. It's the question of the real trade-off that we should be thinking about is not pure, demo- is pure democracy on the one hand versus oligarchy on the other, not a, not a single leader. We romanticize single leaders. I think we, we might have some kind of tribal ancestral instinct as human beings to like want the one leader. But in practice, oligarchy is the only real other pole um, if we're not going to democracy. And uh, you know Aristotle saw this and so he thought that it, the, perhaps the, he argued that perhaps the best practical form of governance was something he called polity, some kind of blend of democracy with oligarchy. And that's really what we have in the rich countries today is we have some kind of blend of democracy with oligarchy. and getting that balance, uh, I think we can improve that balance by moving just a little bit in the direction of oligarchy.
0: So it sounds like you're saying and I and I agree that, really the central benefit of democracy is avoiding worst case scenarios which Absolutely. are famine mass killing um, democracies are very good at at preventing those things from happening but not good at choosing you know the best policies on the more mundane issues mm-hmm. right so you know that's is is another benefit of democracy preventing civil unrest in some way because this is an idea people have had that by having frequent elections, And especially multiple parties, people can discharge their kind of civil tensions in a nonviolent way. Whereas in an autocracy or a, a one-party state, things just bubble up over decades and yeah. then end in bloody revolution. So is there evidence to support that idea?
1: You know, I actually don't know of evidence to support that, even though I've heard of it for decades, right? It's an important idea. I actually teach it to my students. I say, the great thing about democracy is that it's a regularly scheduled revolution. And you're right. It seems to be some kind of release valve that moves the government in in the direction of the masses and social pressures in small degrees, you know, as the as the voters are changing their views. And if there's one thing that, I mean, my, you know, my, my colleague, Richard Wagner at GMU, he th- talked about politicians as entrepreneurs. And it's obvious that when you actually see politicians and, you, you know, and you and watch them working, they do have this entrepreneurial spirit. And part of being an entrepreneur is listening to your customers. Like they're always trying to read, read the tea leaves. They're trying to put their ear to the ground. They're trying to sense what's going on so they can predict, like give these voters what they want. I mean, the will of the voters is kind of incoherent, um, difficult to quantify in any serious way, and politicians are trying to get the best information they can to sort of move in that direction. So the idea that politicians aren't at all responsive to voters, you can only think that if you've actually, never actually talked to a politician, right? I mean, part of their job is to act like they're all confident and everything, but they want to, they like to win, and they really like to win by more than 60%.
0: So when you look at senators, for example, and you see in their first four years they act "quote unquote" more like statesmen, and the last two years uh, they act like well, doing whatever they can to get reelected, yeah. pandering, pandering, yeah, as you, um,
1: celebrating democracy as you're supposed to say, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, in their first four years, though, are they governing from a sense of their own wise, like their own wisdom, or are they are they Favor trading with interest groups. Oh, they're doing a lot of that,
1: right? So it's not that they're, it's not that these guys are saints the first four years, disinterested, noble, you know, public servants. And uh, the first four years, it's that some mix of forces gets them to act the way economists want them to act, right? So the the trade deal thing is one of them. Another, but they're they're not doing that out of, out of because they remember
0: their freshman econ class. They're doing that. They're probably
1: doing it because they're lobbyists who are like, hey, you know, we'd love to have these tariffs lowered it would and we might give your your son a job and it just so happens that room. in that case yeah, yeah.
0: the lobbyists have a yeah. view that expert economists would tend to agree with
1: yeah so when people complain about like the swamp and they complain about corruption in government i'm like you know a
0: lot of that stuff is
1: working out just fine
0: but they're also handing out like corn subsidies and and stuff yeah you're that right economists wouldn't I, yeah. agree with right
1: and and alas because we live in a democracy we're going to keep those corn subsidies forever right because everybody needs to win iowa Right. We're stuck with that. It's it's a democracy. Demarc- you know, that's a case where if you did have an autocracy, you probably would get rid of the corn subsidies in Iowa. Right. I don't want to do that. I'm just willing to take um, having eighty-five percent ethanol as being the price of a democracy.
0: So what do you make of the possibility of benign dictatorship? And people I mean, not that Singapore is a dictatorship, it's kind of a hybrid interesting mm. case, but people will point to a Singapore Um, As an example, or, you know, many, many decades ago, South Korea as an example, where autocracy coincided with very high economic growth and will kind of romanticize the idea of of um, just not being a democracy full stop. So what what do you make of that idea?
1: Well, we have um I like to romanticize Singapore, but I also at the same time do not recommend it to others, right? Singapore is a you know imp- incredibly impressive country, right? And they do not have anything like a full democracy. It's very hard to run a competitive election against the government. So, they have some seats, but you know, they're not they're kept from winning anymore. So, it is the case that many countries that industrialize, industrialize when they're not a democracy and then they get, they switch to democracy later on. That fits a theory that democracy is sort of a luxury good that countries buy, right? And it's a reminder that when we're going with these, when people want to say democracy causes growth, well, A, look at a lot of these development miracle countries and realize they went for democracy after they'd gotten a lot of growth already. But it is a sign that, you know, whenever someone plots a simple correlation and tells you it might be causation, you should say, well, maybe it's going the other way around. I have to. I, similarly, I have to look at South Korea's example. I mean, I, I spoke to someone who grew who grew up in that. I taught at George Mason University's Korea campus for two semesters. It was a great experience. And I talked to someone who grew up there during the dictatorship era. And this person saw people he loved suffer um, under the dictatorship, but at the same time, he knew that the dictator Park Chung Hee like saved his country from being a wreck. That was his theory, right? I have to look at the data and say, I think South Korea would have done just fine otherwise. East Asian countries that were not dictatorships did fine, right? Japan industrialized after World War II, real democratic elections where parties were allowed to go in and out of power. Uh, maybe the communists were kept out. but uh, So it's I, the causal effect of either democracy or dictatorship is pretty weak. Here's what I can say that's empirically has better evidence. Dictatorships are high variance. Dictatorships are basically you can get a big up or a big down democracies are basically the bond the bond market fund of political governance systems it's safer so that's the i think most most people should be discouraged from taking the risky bet when it comes to governance and so that's why i think that the autocracy story the celebration of autocracy ignores the many many bad cases that happen on the downside our brains just can't keep all the facts in our head at once that's why some glib statistics can go a long way on something like that
0: okay so in the context of the 10% less democracy idea the idea that you know there, there are certain ways in which you know, experts and elites actually should wrench a little bit more control away from public opinion and, and voter control. How do you view the influence of the electoral college? Because it, it's, a, it's a perpetual fantasy of some to get rid of it, especially when Democrats have say just lost an election yeah, as yeah. a result of the electoral college distortions or seemingly as a result. How would that influence uh, your kind of view?
1: Well, suppose let, let's imagine a scenario where it happens, like Deus ex machina. Suppose the Supreme Court just declares it illegal. We have to go to proportional voting, right? I mean, just, just straight straight voting for the president. Um, all that would happen is that the vote, the, pol- the pol- uh, our two big political parties would just switch their positions a little bit to win, right? So, I mean, it would it would have very little net effect, I think. The big effect of the uh, what we need to think of with the electoral college is we should we should really be thinking about the European Union when we think about the electoral college. Right. The Electoral College was a deal that was struck to get the Constitution written. And, you know, if you were creating it from scratch and you didn't have to buy off the support of nine of 13 states, you would never have written the Electoral College. Right. It was a gimmick that was written to get to get the Constitution done. Similarly, in the European Union, they had to give a lot of um, veto rights to individual states much stronger than our than veto than uh, filibusters in the Senate just to get the European Union going. Right, so sometimes people make big ugly deals in order to get something going, and it's a little bit of a deus ex machina to imagine. It's it's a crazy counterfactual to imagine. What would it be like if that had never happened? Right, like well, you wouldn't have the I wouldn't have the EU if everybody had to if every uh, vote was given equal weight. I wouldn't have the United States uh, if every vote was given equal weight. So if it happened today. If I just imagine it, what are you going to get? You're going to give a lot less weight to to rural areas, right? Suburbs and the cities would get more weight. I think I'd be in favor of that. I think that would probably give me better policy. I think I would probably get less romanticization of agricultural life and less agricultural subsidies. Do I think it would change things dramatically?
0: No. So let's talk a little bit about about your other book, which is uh, The Culture Transplant. What what was it that drove you to become interested in in this subject of uh, sort of cultural assimilation, the stickiness of cultures over time, the effect of importing migrants on the long-term culture of, of, a, of a nation and so forth?
1: Well, um, it really was a result, in a way it's a sequel to my for my first book, Hive Mind, which is about IQ. I mean, the thing is, is that I have a lot of, there's a lot of good experimental evidence that intelligence has big positive spillovers, that uh, smarter groups are more cooperative, that as my colleague Brian Kaplan showed, smarter individuals are more likely to favor market-oriented policies by normal IQ measures. The thing is, is that as an economist, these are all like very short-run measures, right? Something Somebody's taken a test in a, lab and I'm watching them do play a game. I'm looking at the savings rates. If I'm really interested in economic growth over centuries, I need to have some kind of measure that tells me how something reliably and in a trustworthy way, how something changes over time, over centuries, even decades. I'd be happy with decades. And so there, I couldn't tell a lot about how IQ changed over time, especially over things like centuries, right? Oldest IQ tests are about a century old. So I wanted some way to say something about growth and development and how policies change outcomes. That looked at the very long run. And it turned out there's this whole literature that was getting built up from about 2010 onward, just as I was sort of finishing up my IQ book. And this part of this literature looked at how migrants from different countries behaved in America, but not just how those migrants behaved, how their descendants behave, right? So for instance, there's a new study that's been out that shows that um, second-generation migrants, people who are born in the U.S., who come from high-savings-rate countries, are tend to save more than people who come from low-savings-rate countries. And this is in the second generation, right? There's similar studies showing this for uh, in Germany and in the U.K. And so people are importing savings behavior from their countries of origin. And it's not just that the migrants have it, it's that their children who are born in the new country have that. So this is getting me at multi-generational questions that I think we should be concerned about if we're interested in like where prosperity comes from. People import part of their savings rate with them. Is like a good, a, an important finding that people should know. And that's, that's the kind of information that I wanted to be able to convey to people um, so that they don't fall for these silly romantic views that people assimilate and that the melting pot is real and that people just become, that uh, migrants become indistinguishable from other folks um, within a generation or two. I mean, My uh, LDS ancestors came from Wales. Um, A lot of uh, Mormons came from Sweden. They moved to Utah. There's still a lot of Swedish and English and Scottish and Welsh stuff going on in Utah, all these more than a century later.
0: Aren't Mormons a little bit of a special case, though, in the sense that, and um, I mean, you you can obviously tell me more about this, but my perception is that Mormons and, and certain other cultures are more invulnerable to influence from other cultures. And that's actually a particular feature of certain cultures, Mm -hmm. right? Like the extreme cases, the Amish or the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidic Jews, that's
1: not like the general case of a migrant. Totally true. You're right. That's why I like to stick with the broad generalizations of big statistical studies, right? Like I'll I'll use a personal anecdote as an illustration, but really what I should believe is the general research. And so for instance, within Europe, it turns out that uh, people migrating from one European country to another in the second generation tend to hold attitudes that are a lot like those back home when it comes to the proper role of government. So do I think the government should take care of people or do I think people should take care of themselves? That's something that is like probably has an effect on how people vote, right? Probably has an effect on people's political opinions. And how people answer a survey question like that is moderately carried over from the country of origin. So the way this, that methodology works is you, you ask people in, um, you ask people in Italy, for instance, how much, should the government take care of people or should people take care of themselves? And then you ask second generation, say Italian Americans, Should the government take care of people or should people take care of themselves? And you see a sort of matchup. Italian-Americans a lot like Italians in Italy in the second generation. So when you say a lot like, I mean,
0: I'm I'm trying to remember the figures from your book, but you were talking about correlations of like between 0.5 and 0.25 or something. Something like that. Yeah. So like
1: you you get some that are higher and some that are lower. So I would say like, yeah, 0.25 to 0.5. So I would say, I think of those as explaining, say, a quarter to a half of the data by normal measures. So... So there's, there's too much to ignore. And even when we have evidence from up until the fourth generation, which doesn't come in on a lot of studies, but it does come in 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 one study of trust. um, Even there, the, you get this sort of 40% persistence lasting into about the fourth generation on people bringing their home country attitudes toward trust to their new country.
0: So there, and I also learned from your book, there are, on different traits there is a different levels of persistence so for example yeah. general trust seems to be kind of persistent savings rates seem to be persistent yeah. but religion strangely, religion is, doesn't is, is yeah. not um, now,
1: attitudes toward whether women should work doesn't is that persistent
0: a priori i would expect that to to be the opposite i would i would expect religion to be one of the most yeah. persistent and say like saving savings rate to be mm-hmm. kind of environmentally contingent or even trust level to be environment i mean environmentally contingent i can picture taking someone from a very high crime low trust environment if they move to sweden yep. and they realize actually everyone is nice here i can finally afford to be yep. trusting it would seem within one tra- within one generation you would get a, high, a more trust trust trusting person what is your theory of why those certain traits don't persist which traits persist and which don't
1: yeah that's I'm glad to speculate on it. I, I will say that, for instance, there's uh, here's one that uh, doesn't persist at all. Is basically, can I trust the police? And Again, that, that fits what you were that saying doesn't before, surprise where me it's because like, it's what happens right around you. on The, the police are more trustworthy right in, in some places than in and, others. And, and your opinion is mostly shaped based on what you're seeing right in front of you, right? So it's an opinion of somebody else Right, as sort of. Can I trust my local government? Might be much something that's much more that moves with the country that you're in. Right? Also,
0: language is not very persistent. Oh, exactly. You're, you're, right? you're not going to find so a third generation is really high. Right, third generation exactly. immigrant that um, speaks so, the home. The, uh uh
1: Leah Bustan, um, in her research, uh, she makes a big point of the fact that uh, in the, among U.S. migrants in the second generation, there's a lot of name assimilation. Right, and you know, further on, I'm sure there's even more name assimilation. And so you can imagine sometimes it's a, something as simple as I want my kid to fit in in school. Right. don't want my kid to get picked on. So, and you know, it's unfortunate the kids do that, but that ends up shaping some assimilation. as fear of the other. So I don't have a grand ultimate theory, but I do know that some of the ones that do fit line up with things that look like things that look more like simple economic parameters, right? So in economics, we have this one idea that actually I, I first learned from Austrian economics, the idea of the rate of time preference, how patient a person is, how much you give thought for the morrow, And that seems to be something that people sort of carry with them from one country to another, that that sort of rate of patience. That's going to be shaping your level of frugality. Like how much, you know, do I spend on things right now? Do I help out my family right now? Do I help out my loved ones right now? Or do I say, no, I got to say no to that because there's something might happen in the future.
0: What do you make of the fact that People that leave a country to to go to another country are, in the general case, let's say, economic migrants are a very non-random sample of the totally countries true, right? that they come from, yeah. and therefore, you know, naively, I wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a big correlation.
1: Well, it may be as simple as that. Basic. So let's 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 be optimistic about this, which is fair enough. Here, let's assume that the people who come to to America are, on average, like you know, in the top third of the countries they're coming from, right? Like that's plausible, right? And but then. They'll each be the top third of their own country, and their countries will each differ on those traits. So my hunch would be, for instance, that, uh, say, second-generation um, Italian-Americans will be more trusting than other Italians, and, um, but still less trusting than the Swedish-Americans, right? So, And that actually is what ends up happening in the data when you look around. So basically we're getting, the selection ends up um, in many cases bumping people up, but you still get the correlation. So it's, uh, if you think in old uh, high school algebra terms, Y equals MX plus B, we're shifting up the slope, but we're, we're, we're keeping the same slope, but we're shifting the intercept.
0: So let's say I come from a very low trust country, probably a country where it makes sense to be low trust. And then I move to my sort of an immigrant enclave in the new country. So for example, to take, My grandparents from Puerto Rico moved to the South Bronx in the late 50s. They are now in a a neighborhood largely with other people from low-trust countries in a context where it still makes sense to be low-trust. Now, if you measure the trust of the entire country, you're going to say, well, these are the low-trust migrants have remained low-trust. They're bringing bringing their culture with them, but they are bringing their culture with them in the sense that they're around the same people from the the mother country. So it kind of they haven't really necessarily moved into yet the segment of society where it no longer makes sense to be low trust. They're still in the immigrant enclave. So what would be interesting to me if is if you could parse the difference between say and to keep with the example, the porter the descendants of Puerto Ricans that have now moved to places in the country that have no crime that are high income, mm-hmm. do they remain low trust relative to their peers, or relative to the Puerto Ricans that stay in immigrant enclaves with other Puerto Ricans from who are all from a low-trust mother country?
1: So A, that's an important question. But B, if I'm writing a non-utopian book, I don't want to spend that much of my time thinking about scenarios that aren't actually happening, right? If, it's if, it, if for instance, it is very common for folks to stay in ethnic conflict, conclaves, and that keeps down their trust to their initial country of origin levels, that's something I want to report, Right. So there might be a reason why assimilate. If merely finding a reason why assimilation is not happening doesn't mean assimilation is happening, right? No, but it does importantly changes the causal mechanism
0: because under one reading, the, the thesis is just that immigrants don't assimilate full stop. Culture is sticky. The culture of your mother, of your parents just goes to you with high likelihood regardless of what happens in the country you're moving to. Uh, the other would say, well, no, there's nothing inherently sticky about culture. It's the fact that if you if you create a little Puerto Rico in the new place you go to, you're gonna stay very similar to Puerto Rican, whereas if you actually move to a different environment where you are now a minority shoulder to shoulder with a totally different culture your kids will turn out like the new culture not the old one those are very different causal mechanisms those are you're right yeah.
1: absolutely yeah i mean so and this-
0: and one would i mean so like one the, the second causal mechanism would imply that low rates of immigration properly handled so as to avoid enclaves would actually lead to like more Assimilation per person than high rates of immigration that uh, that you allow to become enclaves, mm-hmm. for example.
1: For, in some cases, I might not want assimilation, right? If I'm bringing in folks who are higher savings rates, who have high, have higher savings rates and better attitudes toward government, I don't want them assimilating to the crummy attitudes of other Americans, right? My uh, long-standing claim is that I believe in open borders for anyone uh, who can, who believes in Uber surge pricing, right? And if I have an, if I give instant green cards and instant voting rights to anyone who comes to America and believes in Uber, just because they believe in Uber surge pricing, I don't want them coming to me, America, coming to America and getting contaminated by the crummy anti-market views of the average American. So there's, so notice we quickly have to start having to quickly become social planners once we're going down the path you're describing. And I don't object to trying it out as an example, right, as a. And mental exercise. But if my goal is to make America the best country it can be, I want to bring in folks who have better attitudes than the folks we've got here, not just people who are no worse than the current folks. So
0: yeah, so let's talk about open borders because this actually, in my view, connects to both of your books. One of the problems that I've highlighted with open borders in the past is that it takes immigration policy. Out of democratic control. That's actually it may not be a problem according to your view, but it's a it's a it's a fact. The people who come to this country on the southern border are not determined by the voters or by the representatives of the voters, but largely by the push factors in Central America. If there's a civil war in a, in a, in Guatemala tomorrow, a lot of people are going to flee, and they're going to end up in Texas, in Arizona, right? Because we don't have great border control. We don't have very solid border control there. If I were someone that was very pro-democracy and felt everything should be under democratic control, I would want a very strong border so that the profile of immigrants that come to the country are decided by the voters, mm-hmm. just like we would decide healthcare policy or school funding or anything like that, right? So if you would agree with me that like currently our de facto immigration policy is out of democratic control, it's nor is it in expert control, for example, what would be what would be the implications of having a strong border, right, for our immigration policy? Well, um... Of bringing it under democratic control, in other words.
1: To point out, if... If the idea is that anything that changes our country a lot should be under democratic control, then we're going to have to have the government in charge of fertility policy. And I definitely don't want that. Right. Who are all these people having kids without government permits? Right. I definitely don't want that. So there are a lot of personal decisions that should be not under government control. And so part of being in a democracy is a part of being living in a country that has something like a bill of rights is saying uh, there are certain rights that we all agree on that are just outside of debate. And so one question is, should certain forms of migration be outside of debate, just like what religion you are is part of debate, out of debate, thank goodness. So right now we have open borders between all 50 states, right? If ever, if uh, if there's really high crime in Washington, D.C. and people decide to move to Northern Virginia, nothing, nothing people in Northern Virginia can do about that, right? So we just live with that. That's just part of the deal. Again, that's part of the 1789 deal in a way, right? So if now... Your hypothetical, uh, seriously though. If uh if the United States were like literally able to be in in control of the southern border and could, you know, basically it would be just like coming in at the airport at LaGuardia, right? They can decide whether what, what the deal is with each individual person who comes in, it seems pretty obvious that um the American voters would still favor a pretty soft family reunification policy. The average American really likes for families to be together, so I suspect that in terms of net total flows. If we actually had voters in charge, we would have um, a lot of people would be continuing to come from. Uh, Mexico, and to some extent from Central America, more or less matching the flows of people who've arrived in the last generation or two. And American voters have been really unwilling to uh, separate families or to say like, your sick grandpa or your uncle or your nephew who's trying to go to college shouldn't be allowed to come in. So I actually have my doubts about whether the total flows would change that much. I mean, I'm just speculating here. But um, American voters are a bunch of softies deep down. Um, They might not like, they don't seem to like seeing a lot of chaotic activity in border towns, they feel sorry for the people in those border towns and what they have to put up with. If you regularize that, can you imagine them saying, like, you can't bring your two-year-old kid along to America? No. No, I can't. Yeah. I think family I can definitely is a very can, strong meme in America.
0: I can definitely imagine Americans voting for a de facto, like, tough for a single male economic migrant to get yeah. access with, yeah. no, with no family.
1: Yeah, you're right. You would probably get a lot less of that. And I mean, it might be, I mean, if I were just speculating, it would probably be more female biased. The voters would probably be more, you know, more open to creating opportunities for female migrants, uh, partly because of biases against men overall, right? Men do commit a lot more, you know, t- probably 10 times the violent crime of women, right? So, and and a lot of family reunification. And if a lot of that family reunification is folks who are, you know, under 25, they're going to be raising families here too. So I just have a hunch about that. They're like, that might not change things much. I mean, that wouldn't be my utopian policy from the point of view of making America the best nation it could be forever might be part of it, but um,
0: how big is the gap between public opinion on immigration policy and economists' opinion on immigration policy?
1: Oh, this is this is a, this is one where um, I can't really I don't really know what economists' opinion is for real on immigration policy because all the questions are phrased in weird ways when economists get asked them, and I think there's some Straussian stuff going on, some like hiding of their true views. So I mean, it does seem as though. You know, economists are very excited about high-skilled immigration. So economists, I mean, like a, like a lot of policy activists and entrepreneurs. They are aware of the fact that you're a lot more likely to get a lot of positive externalities, lots of positive spillover effects. More in a, The things that they'll highlight, not, not, not precisely what I'll highlight, um, is um, you'll get a lot more people who are scientists, engineers. You have less, uh, fewer fiscal concerns about people taking more out of the public till than they're putting in. In fact, it's the other. like They might be putting in much, much more, right? This is one of the things I try to have to remind people of when we're talking about immigration policy. Why not the best? Why? I mean, there are a lot of people who'd like to come to America. Why not bring in the folks who are going to pay 10 times more in taxes than they're going to drain out so they can take some of the burden off of me? So I I think that uh, some version of high-skilled immigration seems to get a lot of support from economists because it has clear positive spillovers for the whole economy and it it eliminates a lot of concerns about uh, being any kind of drain on the fiscal, on the fisc. The the Concerns about low-skilled immigration drawing on the government's debt or maybe overrated some, it gets a little complicated, but- why not just pick the thing that's not not debated at all?
0: So when you talk about the importance of trust and the stickiness of attitudes towards trust among migrants and immigrants, your colleague, Brian Kaplan, who wrote a book uh, called Open Borders, for which I had him on the podcast a while ago at this point, um, he made the point in that book that, ironically, like democracy, there may be a kind of Lafer curve for trust where like... A certain amount there's an optimal amount yeah there right? isn't there he, he isn't just, so you disagree he read, he read with that study that. wrong yeah she read that study wrong okay yeah, well okay, just, just yeah, yeah. Briefly, if you look
1: if you look at income yeah. levels across countries it's like this he picked he picked something weird so.
0: okay so i think what he said in that book was like if you look at the highest trust states like the dakotas they're not the highest productivity they're not states, the richest, yeah whereas new You're right. york in the US, boston the u.s things are kind of weird yeah okay but but across hold on. how does that weird. how does that all hang together though
1: yeah i mean I mean, part of it is that uh, trust is only one part of my story. So like, I think, you know, I think it's better to spend more of our time on the things that are really easy to measure concretely, like savings rates. And something where we know it, it's more likely to have an effect on policy, like your view on the role of government. So yeah, it's a reminder that there's there's more than one thing going on. Um, the North, uh, the Dakotas, are not a great place for people to take on high productivity projects, and so you have some folks there who tend to come from ethnic groups that are quite high trust. A lot of people of Scandinavian descent, who by any measure, are top of these ratings uh, on trust. And but uh, entrepreneurs aren't excited to launch the highest. The highest activity, the highest productivity uh projects there, unless it comes to fracking, right? So yeah, the coastal cities have been magnets for high innovation projects. And they get the benefits of American institutions that are created by people all across America, but that are voted on by politicians all across America. And that's that's great. Like there's uh, yeah, it's just a reminder that when you're looking within the United States, the amount of variation is restricted in a way, right? You're looking at one of the best places in the world. Let me tell you what it's like, actually. Here's one of my favorite correlations. You hear this all the time online. Do you know that within the NBA, there's no correlation between height and how good you are at the sport? Right? Yeah. So that what, basically what is this America term? is one big country like that.
0: There's a term for this. Is you're, it it's a restricted range? It's not, problem, but it's not just
1: restricted range, right? It's because, so you're right about that restriction of range is a big problem in a lot of statistics. Uh, that's when you're only looking at a, a group of super smart people. So the, the correlations get weaker. That could be the whole story here. But I have a hunch that it's more than that. Um, when we talk about the NBA case, it's that the reason you're led into the NBA is because you're good, not because of your height. So height does help. But there are other people who are really good at doing great things in the NBA who do make it up through some other way than height so basically it's the ex-ante selection so um i don't know if that's what i doubt that's really what's going on in the but even US think of thing. like
0: what is the economic engine of the united states has always you know new york has always been central new york city since yeah. its inception new york, has San been Francisco, central
1: chicago yeah yeah
0: and even new york just compared to all of the other early cities was clearly mm-hmm. it was different from boston and philadelphia yeah. I would assume it's always been lower trust than Boston and Philadelphia, too. I don't know that that's true. Yeah, but, it seems plausible. Yeah. But it seems plausible just because of the history of New York and the, the grittiness, the immigration, the
1: quote-unquote unwashed masses, the crime, the crime yeah. Ellis Island, everything, right? But notice the institutions that New York lives under are designed in the United States as a whole, right? They're living under the Constitution. They appeal to federal courts. That are no part of, of which, uh, you know, New Yorkers are only a small part of the federal judiciary and the people voting for the federal judiciary. So part of my story is that pe- voters in the Midwest, voters in Wyoming, voters in Texas—they're all building this America uh, and the American institutions that New Yorkers um, get to take advantage of. I mean, I was just walking around town this morning and I saw I saw a U.S. federal court right, right down there, just a couple blocks southeast of here, and that U.S. federal court exists through the legal, through the voting behavior of people far from New York. They're building the institutions. I would so new yorkers are building a small part of america's institutions.
0: I agree with that. At the same time, if I if I think of the prototype of the ambitious entrepreneur who can flourish best in a high trust system with courts and enforcement of contracts and so forth, nevertheless that ambitious entrepreneur is not a particularly high trust person mm-hmm. and in in some ways is kind of a low trust person. Mm-hmm. Um, So how does that hang together? Is it that the ambitious entrepreneurs that who provide the kind of energy exists best within paradoxically a very high trust predictable system that is sort of in some way run by people that are unlike him?
1: I'm a big fan of the view that uh, trust is in large part a measure of trustworthiness. And a, large, a lot of what you need to run in a society is you don't need people who are trusting. What you need is people who are trustworthy, right? And so an entrepreneur who's skeptical of other people still would prefer to work with people who can be trusted and don't have to be monitored that much, right? A whole lot of game theory, a whole lot of information economics is about these so-called principal agent problems. Like, how can I lend $100 to somebody to take on a project and be pretty sure the person is going to actually work on the project? How can I hire a wor- an employee to work at the yogurt shop and not have the guy just give away yogurt to all his friends? You need some trustworthiness in order to make the yogurt shop work. Otherwise, you're going to have to put in cameras. So having um, employees who are relatively trustworthy, having business partners who are relatively trustworthy, turn out to be an important part of being able to run a business, many businesses at least, um, in an efficient way. And so if we treat trust as a proxy for trustworthiness in many cases, you'll see something important there. That shows up in a fair amount of the literature.
0: So one really interesting fact from your book was that the, the cultural differences which are sticky such as trustworthiness and some of the others you mentioned, saving, savings rates are much more sticky from mother to child than from father to child.
1: Yeah, that's one study that shows that. I found another one after the book came out that found the same thing. Yeah.
0: So is that just a function of the common sense point that like a lot of fathers aren't around, Fathers are more likely to disappear? Or is it actually is it the case that like even in split culture families, you're, you're inheriting more of your mother's culture somehow?
1: I, you know, I've got two studies now finding this, right? And I can't say that's definitive, right? We shouldn't be, you know, we like five or 10 or something, um, run with different data sets. But to me, it, A, I think the first thing I'll say is that the idea of fathers being completely absent isn't enough. That's ha- not happening enough in the data for it to matter. B, it does raise the likelihood that this really is a cultural Um, child-rearing environment you're in kind of phenomenon, right? Rather than a, rather they, what some might think is, hey, a lot of this stuff must just be genetic. It's just code for genetics. And I'm sure it is. A lot of people online will tell, will say this, right? The fact that this is showing up mother to child is really a strong sign that like the hundreds of hours of parenting are, changing how the child turns out and how that child treats others.
0: At least on those dimensions. At least on those
1: dimensions. I don't know if that's going to be true with savings, right? I don't know if that's going to be true with views toward government, but at least at least it should be opening my mind toward it, right?
0: So how would this interact with the body of research, which has generally found that, so not talking about the genetic influence from parent to child, but... The rest of the variance that most of that comes from the quote unquote non-shared, non-shared environment. Non-shared environment, right? Right. right. Yeah, mystery. So this would seem the mystery of sight, yeah. Right. The shared environment would, by definition, be like the home and the parent. But to the extent your 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 case you're making is true, that would imply that maybe more of the shared environment is having an influence on kids than yeah. like Judith Rich Hill would have said.
1: So for instance, I mean, you know, one, one area where shared environment turns out to matter more than a lot of people would suspect if they know behavioral genetics is, ed- is actually education, for instance, right? It doesn't show up as much with IQ, but it does show up with education, years of education. And, uh, you know, education does seem to have some causal effects. So, so basically what family you get adopted into has some effect on how much education. If you get adopted into a really smart family with a lot of education, you probably get more education. I'm adopted myself, so I can kind of... I live a lot of the behavioral genetics literature on a daily basis. So, but that we, we're we pretty sure by now that um, education does have a causal effect on, say, social attitudes, on like multicultural type wokeness attitudes in a way, you might say. Um, not too much on economic policy issues, but on these sort of social issues. Similarly, I, it looks like this trust trust may be another one where just your acculturation matters. And to go back to something you said earlier, right, language is obviously something where the, cult, the local culture you're in matters a huge amount, right? You end up speaking the language that you're raised around. And so figuring out which the, the culture transplant ends up discussing a lot of attitudes that are along this continuum of things that are heavily culturally influence, like the language you speak, to things that normal beha- normal behavioral genetics people would say, you know, a lot of that's got to be genetic. And so but we've got things all over the map here. and it, I'm hoping that this ends up turning into an area of future research for behavioral geneticists, for anthropologists, for social scientists trying to figure out which cultural traits persist and why over the, over the generations.
0: So it's my understanding that Mormons have very high savings rates, is that correct? You know, like higher than the American average.
1: I actually don't know know about that. I mean, they're really good at tithing, right? But I've
0: seen data yeah. to that effect. And and you said you grew up Mormon.
1: Yeah. Are, you,
0: um, are do you still are you still Mormon?
1: No, no. I went to BYU. I had a great experience there. Um, was a Mormon missionary for uh, four months and decided I didn't believe in it. But decided that Mormons were still better than the average American. So I didn't like leave Mormonism and say, oh, you guys are bad. I left Mormonism saying, wow, you guys are maybe better than me.
0: Yeah. So, in what ways? I just
1: don't. Well, you know, the the high social capital is really fantastic, right? The fact that uh, loneliness among the elderly is really, really diminished among Latter-day Saints just by having congregations that are just the right size where people see each other on a regular basis, socialize a little bit, but not too much. They really seem to have hit a sweet spot of basically finding a strong community. And then also the fact that the, the church is really run by volunteers means that even young people are given op- like small to medium-sized opportunities for leadership. So it really is a good leadership training process. And I think those are both really important. The fact that the, that the LDS have this missionary program that gets young people to go learn a language and try something kind of crazy when they're 19, that that has big social pluses too. You end up building a lot of social capital, but not just social capital in this sort of you know touchy feely sense, but organizational capital. It's no surprise to me that, that Latter Day Saints do well working in a lot of organizations. So
0: I've never met a Mormon that wasn't very nice.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's acculturated, and it's and so I you look at it, and you're like, well, maybe it's because a lot of them are from England. Maybe there's some kind of normal culture transplant thing going on there like Swedes or whatever. Maybe it's that kind of thing going on. Um, but but even, maybe it's I mean, just like being in it's the Mormon culture. There's got to be something else
0: to it because I'm sure if you took the other immigrants from those same places, they would not no. measure up to Mormons in terms of niceness, community ties, yes, close-knitness. Like
1: getting five, six hours a week of practice in different church meetings, behaving that way for decades probably has a payoff, right?
0: So when you decided you didn't believe anymore, what triggered that?
1: I I was really driven by by religious epistemology. So I took the the LDS truth claims seriously, and I weighed them. Uh, There are two key claims, right? One is you can learn the truth of the religion through a a private spiritual experience. Mormons often use the term testimony for that. The second is, boy, the Book of Mormon is really hard to explain. So there you get something much more like Christian apologetics. Does this book look like a miracle? So I spent some time figuring out whether uh, the personal spiritual experience was a valid way of learning the truth. And I ultimately decided it wasn't. I had too many good spiritual experiences toward other faiths to keep it short there. And on the Book of Mormon, similarly, I realized uh, a little bit like the unmanned aerial phenomenon thing. I realized, I don't quite know how this book was written, but it doesn't seem like it has to be a miracle. And there are a lot of other books that are written in really impressive ways, often through a method called automatic writing, where people get in trance-like states and dictate whole books. So some books get dictated by automatic writing, it turns out, uh, trance-like states, where people write books that seem like it was beyond their capability. I don't have an explanation for how automatic writing works. I just know people can write non-miraculous books with it. Apparently, Jane Eyre, one of the Bronte sisters, wrote that way. So yeah, learning that uh, the world was intellectually more complex than I knew at a young age, and learning that spiritual experiences were kind of a dime a dozen, um, those were formative experiences, and that's what pushed me out. How old were you when... I was 19. I was knocking doors as a missionary one day. I was like, hmm, nice people. Have you ever seen the Book of Mormon? Oh, yeah. I went and saw it while it was still in previews, the musical. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel about it? I mean, I thought it was good fun. So it was too optimistic at the end because at the end they say, the kind of the message at the end of the Book of Mormon, the musical, to spoil it, is, well, we're just going to have a new made-up book, and we don't need to believe it anymore, and our religion won't have any rules now, but we'll still be nice Mormons. And um, it was the idea that you can take the parts of religion out that you don't like and keep the rest, and the religion will still stay there. I'm a big fan of what's known as the strict church theory of Rodney Stark, uh, my former colleague Larry Coney. The reason organized religions work is because they have some rules. They weed out the people who are just going to free ride, who are who are not going to give anything to the community. And so the strict church theory I think holds up pretty well. You need to have a religion with rules in order to make it, uh, in order to get people to contribute to the public good. To bring in. a religion needs to weed out the people who bring potato chips to the church potluck, and they need to weed in the people who bring good casseroles to the potluck. And a little bit of fear of God is. One way to get people to bring a good casserole to potluck
0: if i think of my friends who are for example reformed jews and i grew up in a, in a heavily jewish area they seem to have a sense of community without any sense of fear of god yeah yeah is that an exception that proves a rule or is there some way that that works into the strict church theory
1: i without knowing i mean i've learned something about reformed judaism over time i find it very appealing um and the idea of trying to keep the best parts of your faith while adapting to modernity. I think the strictness, if I can speculate on this just wildly without any expertise, it's that Reform Judaism is held together by the need to keep Judaism alive, right? Reform Jews, like um, like most Jews the world over, know that it's really important to make sacrifices to keep Judaism alive. They know that there are forces in the world that would would absolutely love for very evil reasons to destroy Judaism, right, as a whole. And I think that gets a level of commitment and it gives a a willingness to sacrifice for the group that very few, that perhaps no other religion can, can muster up in this world.
0: And there may be a confound of just the historical consciousness that Jewish people have. Yeah. Uh, the recency of the Holocaust, the fact that it in many ways is an ethnicity as well. so those things may help hold it together in it a gives way enough that
1: focal points for people to so to know. that it maybe doesn't need. Fear of God it's possible that it's possible that's what's going on, knowing that there are that there are people around the world currently, hopefully small in number, who would like to destroy you, but that there recently have been incredibly powerful people trying to destroy you that's a, that creates uh that solves uh, I think the strict church theory in a way that I hope no one ever has to solve again
0: so I'm assuming you're an atheist uh, now at a- atheist point. enough yeah atheist so enough. yeah so do you have kids? No, no. So if you did have kids and, you know, given that you have this kind of strict church theory, like you sort of can't get the good without the, I don't know if you would say bad necessarily, but without like the dogma, enforced, socially enforced dogma, would you want to raise your kids in a context to get the nice aspects of, say, Mormonism? Would you just bite the bullet and say, okay, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to inculcate them with a skepticism of the faith because I want them to enjoy the boons of the community. How would you, how do you think that you would manage that trade-off?
1: No, I think that I probably, if I were in a situation like that, I would have found some sort of soft religious commitment that was easy to drift in and out of for on some level, but that would give my kids a religious background. So, and it might be, it might actually have been reformed Judaism. I have my maternal grandmother of blessed memory was Jewish. And um, so I also have some interest in say Anglo-Catholic, Anglicanism, so Catholicism, some sort of uh, Christmas and Easter Catholicism could have been appealing. Um, I don't know what path it would have taken me, but definitely something that exposed, like t- I might, here's the secret story. The secret story is I would want to, I would. it would only be worth my time if it would end up also teaching them some of the, you know, Greats of the Western humanistic tradition, right? So if they end up reading if they end up reading um, the Bible along the way and end up being exposed to great art along the way and great music, that really makes it worthwhile. Because I feel like the humanities training that I got from being raised LDS, from getting to read the scriptures at a young age, and from being exposed to good music of a variety of eras, that was really valuable and I wouldn't have gotten it otherwise.
0: Okay, so uh, I guess that brings me to the end of my questions for now. It's been great to have you on. Before I let you go, where should I direct my followers that may want to encounter some more of your work.
1: Sure. Um, My, uh, my website is easy to find. It's uh, Jones Garrett.com and uh, my Twitter. I'm uh, Garrett Jones and uh, easy to find there. One R two T's. If you type two R's, you'll find the uh, former Yankees player. I think I did that. Yeah. Garrett with one R is me. So, all right. Thanks so much, Garrett. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.